0: You are listening to National Security Law today. Welcome to National Security Law today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're continuing our series on climate change, and as you know, we have been talking to people from the mining industry, we've been talking to people from ocean conservation's perspective. And one of the questions that we've had as we've been listening to these experts on law of the sea and the like is, hey, do we really need this stuff? Do we really need to be mining potato-sized nodules off the bottom of the sea in the abyss? But the reality is that we're transitioning from combustion engines to electric vehicles and we need batteries. And China and India are only growing, as you know, and Russia obviously sees the possibility of oil and gas markets diminish. So we already find ourselves competing with our adversaries for scarce mineral resources. And apart from mining these minerals, does the United States even have the ability to produce batteries? Or is that infrastructure really in the hands of foreign actors on whom we would be unwise to rely? And is control of these minerals a national security concern, since batteries are critical to any number of advanced weapon systems and our communications infrastructure? We're going to move on today from the rote law of the sea and we're going to talk to somebody who we should have talked to probably earlier on and that's an actual scientist. So to help us today we have Greg Glass from the University of Michigan. He is the technical director of the Michigan Battery Lab, responsible for the day-to-day operations of that facility and Greg has a doctorate in chemistry from the University of Michigan. Prior to founding the Battery Lab, he was a research scientist at the University of Michigan and worked at battery companies TJ Technologies and A123 Systems. Greg, thanks for hanging out with me today. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation.
0: All right, Greg, give us a quick overview of the current battery technology, what it needs in terms of minerals and how it's realistically expected to advance or develop in the next three years in terms of the battery technology that could be used, for example, in electronic vehicles?
1: Sure. So right now, I would say that the state of the art for an electric vehicle battery is a graphite anode, so carbon, and a lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt oxide cathode. So the positive electrode is is really what we're talking about when we're talking about mineral scarcity. And it's going to contain lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt, and some oxygen. Uh, The only thing in that entire recipe that isn't scarce, I think, is probably oxygen. The good news is that over the past five years or so, we have slowly pushed the recipe to reduce the amount of cobalt in that formulation. So we're getting closer and closer to 98% nickel. And that's good because nickel isn't as scarce as cobalt. It can be found in places that have much better environmental and human rights protections. The downside to that is that cobalt, for a variety of scientific reasons, stabilizes the electrode so that you get a longer range, longer duration battery. Realistically, I I don't think we're going to bring cobalt back into the picture. I think we're going to figure out a way to stabilize these high nickel content electrodes because they also have higher energy density, which means longer range in your car. And I also think, and we've already seen this with Tesla's announcement a year or two ago, that we're going to reinvestigate the possibility of using a lithium iron phosphate electrode for for the positive electrode. And there again, you've got, uh, you know, lithium, iron, phosphorus, and oxygen. And all of those are very abundant. Lithium iron phosphate is not terribly expensive. It's very safe. It's very high power. The downside is it doesn't have a comparable energy density. So for the same size battery with NMC versus LFP, uh, nickel, manganese, cobalt versus iron phosphate, you won't go as far. Your your battery won't last as long. You won't be able to drive as far. What that means, I think we're probably going to talk about later in the podcast, but there's probably going to have to be some changes in how we think about driving, how we think about our vehicles and, and what we do with them to accommodate possibly transitioning to lithium iron phosphate for all electric vehicles.
0: So I guess if the mining industry tells us that we must have nickel, cobalt, manganese and copper for batteries, is that correct?
1: You're not going to get away from copper. Copper is the current collector. It's basics of how a battery is made. You have a positive electrode and a negative electrode. And at the very bottom layer, you have a extremely thin metal foil. If you're talking about the positive electrode, it's aluminum. If you're talking about the negative electrode, it's copper. And and when I say thin, I mean thinner than a human hair. And then on top of that foil, we coat these other materials. So on top of the aluminum, we'd be coating the nickel manganese cobalt oxide. On top of the copper, we'd be coating graphite or maybe a silicon compound with graphite. There's no getting around needing copper. It's how the electrons move in and out of the battery. The manganese, the nickel, the cobalt, for today's market i think we need them i think with changes in how we use our vehicles with how we use our phones the quantity of those materials we need will go down the other great thing is we're seeing coming down the pike this huge change in how we live our lives how we drive our vehicles and research now has reached it's reached a tipping point where it makes sense to invest in research to figure out how to recycle those minerals out of used batteries. If we're making millions of cars a year with billions of batteries in them, we need to figure out how to pull the lithium, the cobalt, all of these things that we're talking about back out and recycle them into a reusable form that hopefully is as good as the raw virgin material out of the ground, but if not, will be good enough for some second use. You know, the I guess the ideal situation is The best batteries that we make when they first come off the line go into our electric vehicles because they're the highest demand. Once they've gone past that need, maybe they get recycled into grid storage. Once they go past that, maybe they get recycled into raw materials that are then rejuvenated and start the process over again. There are multiple companies that are working on that possibility, and it's definitely a topic of academic research as well.
0: Okay. And do you have any insight into where we are in that process, that sort of development of recycling this material, as opposed to constantly having to mine it and experiencing the, you know, potentially calamitous environmental consequences?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, the the recycling is sort of early stage, I would say. Like I said, there are definitely commercial enterprises doing it. So it's not so early in the stage that it can't be profitable. And I think that we're just gonna see more and more of it. Certainly the European Union is mandating a cradle to grave process on lithium ion batteries. So cells that are made in the EU have to be recyclable in the EU. Um, And I think that's definitely gonna drive a lot of innovation because it's a mandate. Mandates work sometimes.
0: Sometimes, you haven't uh, driven through the Carolinas during a mask mandate, trust me. (laughs) Uh, Okay. But uh, let me talk to you a little bit about sort of the national security angle. Now that all the lawyers are scrambling to find a copy of the periodic table, and in my case, looking at the periodic table placemat that my son uses every night, we do hear in the national security sphere that China controls much of the supply chain, as well as the processing of everything that's needed for batteries. My question to you is, is that really true? And if it's not true, who does have the necessary infrastructure to make these batteries?
1: The infrastructure to build battery cells is not in the United States. I would say that it is primarily controlled in Southeast Asia, a lot of it being in China, a lot of it being in South Korea. And anything that's not in China or South Korea is most likely owned by a Chinese or South Korean interest and placed in a neighboring country for whatever reason. The infrastructure in the United States is sparse. There were a few factories that were built in 2008 timeframe as part of the uh, economic recovery. As far as I know, all of those didn't really survive. You know, they've been purchased, they've been repurposed. They're they're sort of struggling along, but there wasn't a domestic demand for cells made here. So it, it didn't really make sense. I think we see that turning around. You know, obviously Tesla has a gigafactory. They're building a second gigafactory. Ford announced their 11 billion dollar blue oval project on the Kentucky-Tennessee border. General Motors just announced some gigantic investment in cell manufacture and electric vehicle manufacture in the United States. So I, I think we're seeing that this is not something that we can rely on foreign powers to supply for us. But we are definitely behind the eight ball. We need to invest and invest quickly. And we need to realize that because none of that investment has happened here up to this point, we are woefully underprepared from a workforce standpoint. Not only do we not know how to make the batteries, once we have the batteries made and put them into cars, We don't have anybody that knows how to service electric vehicles. We don't know how to pull the batteries out and recycle them. There's, there's a lot of, as you can imagine here in Southeast Michigan, there's a lot of angst about what happens when the electrification really hits its full stride because there's tens of thousands of members of the workforce who've been trained to work on cars. From your local body shop to your General Motors line worker, these are men and women who their entire lives have been focused on wrenching on an internal combustion engine. And all that's going to change. Not just because we can't get the supplies necessarily from foreign actors. From a national security perspective, we can't have another major economic crash where tens of thousands of people don't have jobs and don't have the education to continue in the field that they're in. So we need to figure out how to invest and, and really focus on retraining and educating this next generation of auto mechanics and auto workers. Well,
0: I, I guess I have a tremendous respect for people who do that kind of work. And I think that people who do that kind of work are often more trainable than they would give themselves credit for one. And two, I think anyone brave enough to go down in a coal mine is certainly uh, got the fortitude to sit down and learn something new. So I hope that that happens and I hope people are given opportunities. But I I hear what you're saying. You know, you just can't put a sign out that says hiring now um, and expect people to show up ready to go. And if you can't get your, you know, your little tchotchke from China because, you know, there's a supply chain crisis and it's sitting on a boat off the coast of California, you know, we need to start thinking about producing this. Now, let's talk for a minute about culture because one of the things that I think our enemies exploit, and I think we all know this organically, we just don't like to say it out loud, that is our short-term view of both science and business in mm-hmm. the United States. Um, and my illustration that I typically give for this is that we have an obligation to provide ROI, return on investment. You know, there are quarterly filings that companies have to make. Culturally, we now live by tweets, sound bites, and overnight delivery. And I think we've gone accustomed to a certain pace that I think creates a lot of noise and distraction. We need a long-term plan here. And so I would ask you what culture shifts and technological changes could help the entire country basically make and then afford a transition to combustion engines. And I think also take ownership of and pride in developing the infrastructure that we've talked about as a part a new american culture you know not the Marlborough man or that wonderful you know uaw worker but a whole new thing that's even better than these people in michigan ever imagined they could be
1: yeah i mean i'm a scientist <laughs> that's so we're talking about culture and so now we're really rolling into opinion of mine as opposed to you know science where i can back it up with numbers but you know, I, I think one of the things that we should all think about is our, our driving habits. That's, that's a really good example. So right now, every electric vehicle that comes out, they're touting a further and further electric range, 300 miles, 400 miles, who knows what's next, right? I would ask all of your listeners to stop and reflect when the last time they drove 300 miles without filling up was. And then they need to ask themselves, what vehicle were they in? Because I don't think I've ever owned a car that could go 300 miles on a single tank of gas. The reality is that that we probably don't need that, especially not day to day, every day. I live seven miles from where I work and I drive a gigantic SUV that gets horrible gas mileage. And every time I walk out of the battery lab and I see that monster sitting there, a little part of me feels guilty. What would make more sense for me, and I think most Americans, is an electric vehicle that has a reasonable range, maybe 150 miles, maybe 100 miles, because most people live within 40 miles of where they work. You drive to work, you drive back home, you charge it overnight. If you need to pull a boat or you need to take a road trip to grandma's 15 hours away, you need to rent a car maybe or think about taking an airplane or a train or some other mass transit, that transition from everybody has their own car and their car is the biggest, fastest, best on the road would really help relieve some of the pressure. Um, Particularly if we go back now to the science where I said lithium iron phosphate, those are iron and phosphate are very plentiful. Now we're, we're relieving that supply chain issue. We have materials that we can find in the United States, process in the United States, make into batteries in the United States, but it's really hard to get a 300 mile range out of those batteries. Well, if we have a transition in how we think about using our cars, maybe that 300 miles doesn't matter anymore. Beyond that, some of the other things we need to think about are our convenience. We're a very convenience oriented country. I love my convenience, I love my air conditioning, I love my fast charging phone and how fast I can fill up my gas tank. But when you're talking about a battery in a car that you want it to fill with electrons as fast as you could fill your gas tank with diesel, that's an engineering feat. It's not outside the realm of possibility, but it's a challenge, it will be difficult to do. Maybe we give the engineers a breather and think about, well, how can I plan my day so that I don't need to fast charge my car? And then not only will that give a break to the vehicle engineers, it's going to give a break to our grid. Our electricity grid in this country is woefully outdated. It's desperately in need of some resilience and some updating. And this transition to electrified mobility is, I think, going to put quite a strain on it. So these are all things. These are, they're not small things. Giving up conveniences is is never small. Once somebody has a king size bed, asking them to go back to their twin from their childhood is is not going to happen, right? So, it, it will be a slow culture shift. I think the good news for all of us, though, is the most recent generation seems to be aware of some of the things that are coming down the pike and understand, I keep saying coming down the pike, you know, It's a driving
0: driving metaphor. You've got the Sherman tank sized SUV, which I'm sure you need, right? Every inch of it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I I think the next generation has a a much firmer grasp on some of the climate issues that we're facing. And while they love their phones and and all the modern conveniences, they, might also be willing to to make some of the changes that us older folks are are less inclined to to accept.
0: Well, I uh, I sincerely hope you're right, because the fight in my neighborhood has been over giving up parking spaces. The neighbors here already have their own parking spots. They don't want to give up street parking in order to have bike lanes put in because they say they need the they need to park there for the sake of their children. I always find that that said without any irony is, you know, like sometimes pretty amusing. So if you do have any parting thoughts on this technology that you would like to share with our listeners in general and where we should be looking as we track this as as a real meaningful national security concern.
1: Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think there's two things to keep in mind as we move forward. So we've primarily spoken today about lithium ion batteries. Solid state batteries are sort of an offshoot of lithium ion batteries. They still use lithium ions, but instead of a liquid electrolyte, they use a ceramic or, or some other solid that can also conduct the ions. They're safer. They're going to allow us higher energy density, but they're going to have a whole new set of materials that might be constraints from both a science and a policy uh, standpoint. So I, I think we should keep those in mind and definitely be looking forward into how we can not get to the position we're in right now. Right now, no one is really ahead in solid state batteries. So this is a good opportunity to invest in American startups, American big business, and make the U.S. the home of solid state batteries before it's taken someplace else. You know, the phrase invented here, developed there is, is really true. That's what happened with lithium ion batteries. Lithium ion batteries were more or less invented at the University of Texas, Austin by John Goodenough. And then they were commercialized in Japan and now are being made everywhere else. Let's not do that with solid state. The other thing that I think we need to keep in mind is that while electric vehicles are going to be great and they're coming, they're going to pose problems for certain demographics. If you don't own a home with a garage where you can charge overnight, suddenly it becomes a much bigger challenge to have an electric vehicle. One of the most poignant and gut-wrenching questions we've ever received was from a student at a through K-12 competition in Detroit talking about electrification. And this student asked one of my colleagues, so what happens when I'm driving an electric vehicle and it runs out of charge? When my car now runs out of gas, my uncle can bring us a jerry can on the side of the highway so that we can limp home. What do we do? And I think a lot of us who you know are, are perhaps more privileged have never thought about that. I think well i buy an electric vehicle i park it in my driveway in my nice safe neighborhood i plug it in no one's going to unplug it no one's going to steal the electricity i'll have all the electrons i need to get myself to work in the morning it'll be fine i work at a university that has electric charging stations if for some reason i don't have power at home i can drive to work on the last few little charge percent i have get one of the charging stations here at work and i'll be fine That's not going to be true for a large percentage of the country. And before we go too crazy, we need to keep them in mind.
0: I think that's an excellent thought. There are also just a lot of people who will probably need, at least initially, some sort of help in -hmm. making this transition unquestionably. All right. Well, this has been a good conversation. And I'm, I'm glad that we had it because we do often hear from lawyers. And I think on this particular topic, It was important to just get some hard science, so we're really glad you came, and we hope that in the future, if we develop this further, that you will come back and join us.
1: It would be my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And to our listeners, join us for our next installment on the national security implications of minerals mining and how mining the seabed will have a potentially calamitous impact on one other industry, and that is subsea cables. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law every week. Hit that subscribe button on your listening app of choice. If you would like us to cover particular topics, please reach out. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. The lawyers hosting this podcast are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Thanks for listening.